For fans of the Magnus Archives, like me, Sasha Sienna and Jonathan Sims have launched the Neon Inkwell feed, which is their ongoing home for full cast narrative podcasts written by creators from all around the world. Not only does Neon Inkwell have weekly episode drops, they will be premiering an entirely new show every six to nine weeks. So if you are forever looking for new horror, mystery, fantasy, or sci-fi stories, like me, then subscribe to Neon Inkwell now. Find Neon Inkwell wherever you get your podcasts or visit rustyquill.com for more information. that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. It began on a Tuesday. Later on, there was some argument about this. Religious types insisted it must actually have been a Friday, or a Saturday, or a Sunday, based on the best day of whichever flavor of religion they were promoting, because of course it was deemed to have holy significance when it was all coming to a climax. But it was, nonetheless, a Tuesday. It seemed that a middle-aged man called Malcolm Rutledge was the first to report it. But given the nature of the web, maybe he was just the first English speaker. And within hours, there were thousands of others reporting it too. Hashtags trending. TikTok and Insta and Twitter teamed with it anyway. So even if he was first, it was probably only by a few seconds. The online frenzy felt big, significant on that day, but it was nothing compared to what was to come. I was there on that Tuesday. I didn't join in the social media fever. I'd always been more of a lurker. The thing for me was that it was so incredibly unlikely that I myself would be there that it seemed both more real to me and less real to those who knew me than it would have if I'd not been there because it really wasn't a me sort of thing. As I said, it was a Tuesday. A beautiful Tuesday in late May. It had been cold recently enough that the midges weren't in full force yet, but was still a beautiful day. Over 20 centigrade, which for the pale Scots is positively balmy. The perfect day, Jessica said, for the beach. I could tolerate the beach. The sand and dunes and shells, all fine. It was only the ocean that I wasn't a fan of. I don't know why. I don't have some tragic near-drowning story to explain myself with. In my 20s, a therapist told me I had thalassophobia. She turned out to be abusing prescription meds, that therapist. A later therapist said thalassophobia is a fear of deep water, not the ocean. But I could swim happily in a lake, and I was scared of shallow ocean water. 
Anyway, the second therapist was more help for my sort of brain. She told me, don't name it, just examine it, and we'll find a way to diminish it enough that it won't need a name anyway. Which is what ultimately happened. So then I could say I just wasn't a fan of the sea. To be fair, everyone still living would probably say that now. So, this beautiful Tuesday in May, my friend Jessica, who I'd already planned to meet for lunch, called me and said, It's so lovely today. Let's skive off, go to the beach for a long picnic lunch. And I, fine with the sand and dunes and shells, and just not keen on the sea, said, Okay then. We were both freelance workers, though she was happier at it than I was. But that meant we had the sort of flexibility you need to look out on a random Tuesday and think... Let's go to the beach. She drove. It was about 40 minutes away, the beach we decided on. Scotland has some beautiful beaches. The water is cold here, but scuba divers come from all over the world to experience our white sand in crystal clear water. To access this particular beach, you first drive from the motorway onto a main road, and then down increasingly smaller side roads until you finally reach the last section, which is a rutted, sandy track. At the end of the track is a small parking area with one bin and a path meandering away between the dunes. The dunes are gently mounded, both anchored and adorned by a dense mat of lime and marum grasses, their long, razor-edged leaves poking sharply towards the careless calves of those who would try to ignore the sand path and cut across them. The snaking path leads about a quarter of a mile through dunes before it opens suddenly onto a stunningly beautiful, glittering jewel of coastline. A bay of about a mile across at the mouth lies before you, the loving arms of the outcropping land curving a gentle embrace out into the wider ocean on both sides. White sand slopes gently out to the sea, so gently that at low tide you have to walk almost a mile to reach the water's edge. At high tide, the entire beach becomes an enormous expanse of shallows, only about four feet deep at the furthest edge, where a sudden drop-off plunges the seabed about a hundred feet lower. That was one of the reasons I could tolerate this particular beach so well. At high tide, I could settle myself in the lee of a dune, out of the wind and safe and dry while others paddled or swam and knew there is no question I would have to go in. I couldn't watch a friend drown, but there, nobody could. Anyone drowning, having walked off the drop-off, wouldn't be visible to me on the shore anyway. And at low tide, I could walk and walk and not be in the water at all. On this particular day, the tide had just turned from its peak and was gradually creeping away from us. We picked a spot among the dune's edge and got ourselves settled, laying out beach towels to sit on and unpacking food from our bags. We ate first, chatted about our respective projects. Everyone should have a Jessica. She was one of those relentlessly sunny people, you know? Sometimes she'd be telling me some gratitude-filled story of personal growth and opportunity, and I'd realized with a jolt that it was actually a moderate tragedy or trauma she was recounting. She just didn't see it that way. And it wasn't toxic positivity. 
She would acknowledge hardships and sympathize with the plights of others. It was just that she seemed to see everything in her own life through a sunny lens. She regarded herself as one of the lucky ones and examined all her experiences through that frame. This particular Tuesday, she was telling me that it was lucky that her agent had dropped her because the new one she'd found was a rising star and she felt she was as useful to them as they were to her. And she'd come to realize she'd not enjoyed the way the last one expected her to be grateful for everything and therefore to agree to everything they suggested. I knew the stress of losing an agent and had leaned back, my arms wrapped around my knees, face tilted up to the sun's rays, enjoying how she managed to make it sound like a curious but ultimately satisfying adventure. When we'd eaten, she suggested a paddle. The sea had retreated about 20 yards as we ate. Come on, she urged. I bet it's lovely and warm now. The hot sun did manage to warm the expansive shallow waters here, it was true. But I hesitated. What was I scared of? As I said, I can't really tell you. Nothing specific, like jellyfish or sharks. Nothing like drowning, either. I'm a strong swimmer. And even in open water can hold my own over a mile or more. As long as it's not the sea. No. There was nothing I could put my finger on. Before I'd diminished it in therapy, I used to feel a terror just at the sight or sound or even smell of the sea. A terrible, cloying horror, reaching up from my belly to seize my own windpipe from within and choke me. After the diminishing, it was much less dramatic. I could sit there on the beach and relax and eat and enjoy myself. But going in the water was a different matter. But that Jessica, she's irresistible. Was. When she suggested anything, you felt you were being handed some marvelous gift with the wrappings unsecured and already falling off. It was more effort to keep it wrapped, to refuse, than to just... Let them fall away and join in. She didn't force you. She just made it so easy and wonderful to say yes that you did. So I did. We'd walked down the beach together to the lapping edge of the water. She'd walked straight in while I'd paused for a second. The water was clear, sparkling in the sun a lacy edge of bubbles ebbing and flowing, forming and bursting where the water rolled and broke on the sand. Then I stepped in. It didn't happen right away. It probably took a minute to begin. Jessica, in deeper than me, felt it first. She had been a little ahead, gazing out to sea when... Suddenly, she turned to me with an expression of almost ecstatic wonder on her face and said, Do you feel that? I was about to shake my head, ask, feel what? When I did feel... something. Did you ever use a TENS machine? Or one of those ab blaster contraptions meant to sculpt your six-pack while you lie on the couch eating Cheetos. 
Well, that electrical feeling, that tingly pulse that's akin to heat but not heat, it was a bit like that. Only instead of being on the edge of pain, where TENS takes you to ward off bigger pain, this was on the edge of something else. Have you ever had your toes sucked? Even if you're not interested, like that, in feet, there's an intense sensuality to that sort of thing. A part of your body so usually neglected, being manipulated so intimately, unfamiliarly. It's good, but it's sort of excruciatingly good, you know? Well, it was that sort of sensation. The sand under the soles of my feet suddenly seemed to vibrate in a million tiny caresses, stimulating every nerve in my feet. I stood still, my head tilted, trying to figure out what it was. Was it a jellyfish, I wondered? Perhaps we're being stung and the pain just hasn't kicked in yet. But the water around us remained clear and empty. Maybe there's a toxin in the water then, my mind provided next. Something that's attacking our nervous systems. But while I was thinking this, the sensation began to climb up my legs. I was only standing in about eight inches of water, but soon the feeling was at my knees. It was like nothing I'd ever felt before. The most intense pleasure you can imagine. It was mind-blowingly exquisite. Later, there were a lot of arguments about whether it was a sexual feeling or not. Of course, the internet is a cesspit, so the sexual element was the first to be elevated. But later, we tried to investigate it better, and science had a slightly different answer. The consensus seemed to be that it was sensual, but so intensely sensual that for some people, at some times, it was also sexual, merely because it was all of the pleasant sensualities at once. Or at least it seemed to meet whatever your need was in that moment. So depending on the person experiencing it, it was invigorating, relaxing, warming, cooling. It could quiet a rumbling stomach, slake a fierce thirst, and yes, sometimes it was intensely sexual. Jessica was staring at me in amazement her hands slightly raised at her sides as if she were trying to balance. She didn't speak, but her breath came in little hiccuping gasps and sighs. A flush was rising up her neck towards her face. Her eyes were wide, but even in the bright sun, I could see the pupils yawing wide, dilating with pleasure. I felt it too, this intense glow of delight creeping up my legs. But then... As the feeling reached somewhere around mid-thigh level, something else began to happen to me. I began to feel the old, familiar fear creeping back. Dread. Cold and insistent, descending from my suddenly tight throat, down through my body, as if sinking to meet the invading joy. What set it off, I can't say. Perhaps it was the unfamiliarity of feeling so good standing in the shallows. Perhaps it was the skeptical thoughts about what malign thing it could be racing through my mind. Whatever it was, it overwhelmed the exquisite sensation in my legs, leaving me vibrating with terror 
with an abruptness that made me turn and run for the beach. Jessica, jolted from her own rapture by my sudden departure, followed me, though more slowly. By the time she'd caught up with me, I was sat with our belongings, toweling my legs, examining my feet for wounds, tendrils, or rashes. Hey, what happened? Are you okay? She'd asked me, flopping down onto her own towel. Yeah. No. Sorry. I dried carefully between my toes, surveying each one for signs of injury. That was wild, wasn't it? Jessica asked. Did you feel it too? You did, didn't you? Tingly good feeling? I'd asked, still focused on my toes. In your feet, then sort of creeping up your legs? Yes! I felt it. But what was it? She'd considered this briefly, then shrugged. She looked at her own feet then, not drying them, but turning them this way and that. After a moment, she'd seemed satisfied, glanced at mine, and then stood up again. I might go back in, see if it happens again, she'd said as she rose. I watched her go back down the beach to the water. It did happen again, and it was another hour before I could persuade her from the water to drive us home, reminding her that we both had deadlines to think about. Later that night, I saw Malcolm Rutledge's tweet. At Malkyboy586, anyone else go in the sea today? She was coming on to me, I swear. Girl got game. Hashtag sandgasm. Hashtag dunno what it is, but I like it. I tagged Jessica, and she added her own tweet to the dozens, then hundreds, then thousands that were exploding onto Twitter from every corner of the earth. The rest, as they say, is history. Things happen faster in the internet age, don't they? I imagine that if this had happened before the internet, things might have gone very differently. Information didn't travel so fast before. But maybe that's why it happened now. Who knows? During the month of June, more and more people experienced the phenomenon that became known, irritatingly I thought at the time, by its first humorous hashtag, sandgasm. It wasn't, for most people, an orgasm, but I suppose it did have the same blissful, tingly, and climactic elements to it. Personally, I never experienced it again. Finding out how many others had experienced it on the same day only increased my cynicism. What was it? Why did everyone assume it was good, harmless, and not malign? They didn't wait for investigation to reassure them, they just waded straight in. There were humans I liked, but overall, I found humanity stupid and shallow and, well, irritating. My own fears about the ocean regrew where I'd previously pruned them back, and I felt it was wiser to leave them be. Scientists began investigating, but it seemed to only occur in the shallows, so samples lifted to be examined in the lab yielded nothing. One group established the phenomenon was occurring on a stretch of beach, then removed several tons of sand, took it to the lab, confirmed it was just normal, inert sand, took it back to the sea, dumped it back in the shallows, stood on it, and confirmed that it could now conduct the sandgasm again. 
This moved all scientific study completely out of the labs and onto the beaches, which were already crowded with people who had come to experience the sensation themselves. Some sort of current was the consensus they arrived at. I could have told them that in the middle of the afternoon on that first Tuesday. The sand, they thought, the silica of the sand was conducting some sort of current which uniquely stimulated human nervous systems. Dogs and horses were apparently unaffected. Nobody managed to ask any fish. Scientific study faltered fairly soon, though. In the crush for space, the scientists decided that getting a spot to experience the sandgasm was more pressing than investigating it. By the first week of July, most of the beaches had a permanent, if rotating, throng standing in the shallows at all times of the day or night. Some stood for only minutes, but some were there for hours. St. John's ambulances and then medical ambulances began gathering on seafronts, standing by to rescue those who fainted due to hunger or thirst, or the simple exhaustion of standing in one spot in the sun for 11 hours in a row. But after about a week, the news showed shots of the first aiders and paramedics groaning softly in Rhapsody, standing shoulder to shoulder in the shallows with those they'd gone there to help. The news was crazy back then, like the pandemic, but on acid. Because it wasn't just here, of course. It wasn't just our little beach. It was all over the world, all at once. And on the never-ending scroll of 24-hour news, it dominated. In Australia, entrepreneurial water sellers made a small fortune squeezing between the bodies on Bondi, using the timeless bucket and ladle arrangement to stop those who felt no thirst keeling over in the surf with dehydration. Champagne Beach was so busy that every Instagram pic featured at least 11 influencers, all contorted in their best and most tortured efforts to find an angle that had the minimal number of others in it. On July 20th, an excited correspondent in Mexico declared that there were a billion people on Praia do Casino, stood together in euphoric stupor in a continuous 157-mile throng on the longest beach on Earth. Communities of Sandies sprang up. Permanent beach standers who took turns holding one another up so that they need not ever leave the water, even to sleep. Looking like strange modern peddlers, they were laden with huge rucksacks of sustenance and equipment. Power bank wires trailed and umbrellas dangled, nudging gently on thighs as the wearers shuffled up and down the sand with the tides. In rain, wide metal trays that drained into plastic bladders were placed on heads to catch the precious water needed to replenish drinking supplies without having to leave the sandgasm. Organized religions had a field day. Of course, deities of all possible styles were congratulated for providing this miracle and hundreds of cults sprang up for those who were looking for a god and didn't fancy those already available. The phenomenon was the question and the answer. Surprisingly, few religions seemed to suspect or revile the thing. Maybe it was because all the holy men and holy women had already gone for a paddle. I'd expected a few to denounce it. After all, several religious groups are positively famous for disapproving of pleasure. 
but no. They all announced it was proof of their distinct truth being true. In fact, the shallows were the cure for everything, most seemed to think. Alcoholics and addicts were led, shaking into the water. The diseased were carried to the sea and hauled onto unsteady feet in the sand. Little babies were carried in on parental hips and then dangled, their unsure toes curling in the surf, in the hopes that the first they would know of standing up at all in this world would be the glory of this sensory opulence. There was a more sinister side, too, of course, even back then. The beach we'd been on was a perfect example. The day we were there, we were mostly alone. Only a few more people arrived as we were leaving. But by July, there were at least four or 5,000 people there. Plenty of space at high tide, but at low tide, the mile of shallows would shrink to a few dozen feet. Those pushed out by the crush for space often walked, heads hung low in disappointment as they frantically scanned dying phones for the next high tide time. The nearest beach that wasn't this one. But inevitably, there were some who refused to leave even when there was no room. Every low tide, between 5 and 15, would fall off the drop-off. Strong swimmers might make it around the points on either side and crawl out onto the rocks. But the rest, unable to clamber back onto the narrow, swarming strip of beach, floundered and drowned. Their bodies often floated back in on the returning tide. But the standers, too fixated on the sandgasm, ignored them, unless it was to push them out of the way. People on the coast of Greenland became hypothermic, warmly dressed though they were, from standing in the freezing water. They stood until they collapsed, and then often they too drowned. And there was the sun, too, of course. Around the end of July, I caught the end of a harrowing piece on sunburn affecting the standers around the equator. Images flashed across the screen. Red, raw domes of bald heads. Inflamed skin shredded and hanging in ribbons. Crumpled faces, eyelids thick and weighed down with fat, yellow blisters. And most disturbingly, the expressions of serene and rapturous pleasure and peace underneath the gory carnage. I'd turned it off. The swaying began at the start of August. One of the news groups had commissioned me. Doesn't matter which one now, they're all gone. But not one I'd usually have wanted to work for. They were seeking anyone who would still write at this point. As so many of the journalists they had sent to report were now standing in the sea. I'd accept it, of course, but I'd be lying if I thought it would supercharge my career. By then, I already felt the dread I'd encountered out there in the shallows was a foreshadowing. It was reported in Australia first, but to be fair to us, it was still dark here at that point. So that gave them an edge. I had woken and, as was customary, rolled over in bed to grab my phone. Opened Twitter, saw hashtag sandgasm sway trending, and began to scroll. The best shots I saw were drone footage taken on Cox's Bazaar. Under the scorching Bangladeshi sun, 
The drone was zipping above the millions of heads of the standers in the shallows on the 80-mile stretch of beach. They stood eerily equidistant from one another, each just close enough to the next that if they extended an arm in any direction, they could touch their neighbor's shoulder. And they were swaying. Very slowly, perfectly in time, perfectly together. They were swaying back and forth with the waves, I realized. And no matter which direction they faced, their bodies swayed out towards open water and in towards the beach, exactly as the water moved. They were like a stocky kelp forest made of humans. This magical and horrifying development held the world's eyes for a few days. The standers enjoyed it too. Those with power in their phones still would hold the screens toward their peers, grinning and shouting to one another even as they themselves swayed. By then, things were beginning to break down. So many people were in the sea that infrastructure was beginning to falter. Remote jobs were being conducted patchily on phones, using power banks in the shallows. But some jobs, you just can't do from the sea. The police and healthcare did okay. Nobody was committing crimes or going to the hospital. They were all in the sea. But power, for those of us still on land, began to be a problem. Power cuts began and took longer and longer to resolve. The situation on the beaches was growing more ominous. The standers were getting thin now, too. The sandgasm gave one such a feeling of satiety and contentment that most, purely out of fear of collapsing and losing their spot, had set alarms to remind themselves to eat and drink. But when those alarms sounded, they would take a few sips of water and a bite or two of whatever they had. Cereal bars, rice balls, puff puff sushi, biltong. Their body fat melted away on this meager regime, especially as they now seemed not to sleep, or perhaps to sleep standing like horses. Most of them wore no lower garments by this point, rolled trousers and splashed skirts having long since dissolved to rags by the briny assault. They stood unashamed, naked from the waist down, letting their waist drain and fall from them as if they couldn't even feel it. It seemed, too, that they could no longer safely come out. One of the last full news reports I saw was of a desperate father roping his 20-something daughter as if she were a running calf and pulling her hand over hand out of the water. When she was finally on the beach, the look of ecstasy evaporated and she collapsed in his arms. The camera zoomed uncomfortably close onto their faces, almost into their pores. She uttered in surprise as if she'd not thought of him in years. Daddy? Then took one last shuddering breath and died abruptly and without drama. I watched a little more as he screamed and sobbed and attempted CPR and then tried to drag her back into the sea, presumably hoping it would restore her. Then I scrolled away. I tell myself I only went at the pressing of my editor. 
He wanted me there, he said. He wanted me to tell the story through my unique perspective of a non-stander. He sounded surprisingly bored by my unique perspective, even as he was saying the words. About a week earlier, I'd realized I could hear the sound of the sea behind his voice on his calls. And I doubted I was going to get paid. I think, really, I went because what else was there to do? The streets and roads were empty. Most shops were either closed or unlocked and being slowly looted by the few of us who weren't on the beaches. Staying home, refusing to work, meant admitting something to myself that I wasn't ready to admit. I went to the same beach. I don't know why. I'd not been since that first day, but I'd seen it on local news a few times. I checked the web for the tides and saw that high tide was in four hours. Easy, I thought I can be there in one. I was wrong, of course. I needed fuel, so I drove first to the filling station. There was nobody there, and all the pumps were locked in payment due mode, so I had to go inside and lean over the abandoned counter and dismiss one so it would pump. I did this and then went to the coffee machine and got myself a mocha for the journey, grabbing myself some snacks on my way out. I filled the tank and set off feeling pretty smug. The rest of the world had gone mad, but I was okay. I could manage. I drove for 35 minutes before I hit traffic. The cars weren't just stopped, but parked. Then I realized, of course. These were people who'd driven to the beach and more and more had come until there was no parking. And people had left their cars on the edges of lanes and in laybys on bigger roads and then finally just wherever they'd stopped. I considered for a while what to do and then decided I'd need to walk. And I would walk. But first, I would turn my own car around and drive it a little way back up the road home in case anyone else came behind me and boxed it into this eternal jam. Walking the rest of the way took me three hours. I followed the route I'd have driven along, passing hundreds and hundreds of cars. At first, I looked into them, trying to figure out who had left them, what their lives were like, but after seeing a few too many deceased, abandoned dogs and one deceased, abandoned newborn, I stopped looking into the cars. I suppose it revealed something about their mindset as they tried to get to the beaches, but not something I wanted to know. I only arrived about 20 minutes before the high tide in the end. People had driven onto the dunes and abandoned their cars at crazy angles, making the landscape unfamiliar to me. I was so mildly surprised to come over the last rise onto the beach. I'd not been quite expecting it. The sea lapped a little way away, but I could hardly see the water for bodies. Thousands and thousands of bodies just as on Cox's Bazaar, standing equidistant from one another, swaying. They all faced the sea here, swaying back and forth, rocking from heels to toes and back again. 
I climbed the last dune, which gave me a good vista across the tops of all the heads. They were silent, I realized, and eerily still apart from the swaying. I heard crying, and looking for the source of it, I saw a tiny child, maybe three or four, walking back and forth near the edge of the jungle of legs, just out of the water, wailing. Their voice drifted up high and small. Mommy! Mommy, I can't find you! Mommy! Mommy! There was no movement in the horde. No mummy turned a head or offered a hand. Every single stander just swayed in silent adulation, staring out at the distant horizon. Hey! I shouted at the child. Hey, which one is your mum? The child turned and looked at me, then began to slowly walk my way. When the child was about halfway between the standers and myself, the little back mercifully turned to the sea, the little face fixed only on me. It happened. First, every single stander, as one, ceased swaying. And then... Then... Have you ever seen a paternoster lift? I did, once, when I was a child. My father had taken me to some old building in the university he worked in. They were decommissioning it, he said. He thought I'd like to see it working one last time. A paternoster is a continuously moving elevator. Slowly it goes like a vertical ski lift, up on one side and down the other, moving between four giant wheels. To ride it, you step carefully on as it passes and it takes you up or down to whichever floor you need where you merely step carefully off again. It never stops. It goes quickly enough to be useful, but slowly enough that accidents are unlikely. My father took me on its full journey, telling me sternly as we rode under the lower wheels and over the upper ones, not to be tempted to touch any of the moving parts. Assuming YouTube is still up when you hear this, there are some good videos on there if you'd like to see. It was with a slow relentlessness that reminded me strongly of that paternoster that every stander on the beach, suddenly still after their weeks of swaying, began to descend as one into the sand. At a rate of around six inches a second, they went down, down. Their shins vanished, their knees, as they descended, the water around them began to froth and bloom into a red foam. My mind didn't comprehend the horror of it at first, but I did think coolly that it seemed as if they were being dissolved in acid. They showed no signs of pain or fear, however. I couldn't see their faces, but they remained still, silent. When their fingertips touched the surface, they raised their arms straight above their heads in a macabre stadium wave, racing from the furthest reaches of the shallows towards me. Soon, they were up to their armpits, their necks. As their heads vanished, I found I was holding my own breath. But if they were afraid to drown, they didn't show it. Then I was gazing out across a forest of raised arms, 
fingers outstretched towards the impossibly clear azure dome of the sky. Just lower arms, wrists, just fingertips, and then nothing. Nothing but a mile-wide bay of arterial red foamy water. Hello, said the child who was a foot away from me. Honestly, I almost kicked them straight back down the dunes and onto the beach. I was so shocked. Fuck! I shouted. The child frowned at this. Sorry, I said. It's okay, they replied. I say bad swears too sometimes. I went back to staring at the sea, which, despite it being high tide, was now retreating with concerning rapidity down the beach. The sand gleamed brutally red and starkly bare as the water drained away. Nothing was left. No clothing, nor belongings. Not a bone remained, not a tooth. The child followed my gaze, turning to look. It's red, came the little voice. Red, I confirm. I've lost my mummy, said the child, apparently untroubled by the red. She's called Ellie. Do you know her? She's a grown-up, too. No, I said, sorry. Something was nagging at me. Something I'd seen or read somewhere about the sea doing that, rolling away like that. She's tall like you, the child went on hopefully. She's got my brother. He's allowed to be carried because he's a baby. Tsunami. I remembered. Before a tsunami, the sea often retreats like this. Of course. If this is happening everywhere, then the volume of about... Six and a half billion people was just added to the volume of the ocean. That would raise the sea level by... What's the volume of a human? My mind was too hysterical to do maths. Do you see your mummy? I asked desperately, sweeping a hand out towards the vanishing water. The child looked across the beach properly, frustratingly slowly as my own panic began to surge. No, they said at length. Shall we go and look somewhere else then? I asked. Okay. The child began to agree, but before the word was out, I'd snatched them up into my arms and was sprinting through the dunes with them. Through the grasses that tore and slashed at my skin, I ran. Through the crowded car park and up the car-choked path, when I got to the minor road, I left it, veering through an open gate and sprinting through a field of potatoes that rose fairly steeply and was the only high ground anywhere nearby. At the top, I stopped by a stand of trees and put the child down carefully before collapsing onto my knees and vomiting my mocha and snacks onto the grass. When I'd finished, I sat back on my heels, wiping my mouth on my sleeve. Okay? The child asked. I nodded. I'm Rora, said the child. Aurora is only for tellings off. Hi, Rora. I'm Kai. I held out a hand and Rora took it and solemnly shook it. Poorer, larger countries did better. 
Places where lots of people lived deeply inland and were too poor to make a trip to the coast possible retained more population than those where everyone had either a beach nearby or the means to get to one. Some parts of our infrastructure fell apart pretty quick, but we get by. The internet seems to be immortal. As long as enough servers stay on, and as long as you have a powered device to keep accessing it, of course, those are getting scarcer. We're a ragtag bunch. We found each other and lots of the others still around on TikTok. When almost nobody is uploading videos, everyone alive sees anything new almost right away. There's me and Rora, of course. She's a cheerful thing and surprisingly good at siphoning fuel out of abandoned cars. There's Agnes. She's an old bitch, truth be told, but she says she knows how to deliver babies and she can train horses, which we're going to need when the fuel all turns bad in a few years. There's Eric. He's a bit of a recluse still, even when he's almost the last man on Earth. But he's good with his hands and can fix anything mechanical. And then there's Bev. She can cook and she's tech savvy. It's hard. I think about the people, all the people that are gone. I think about Jessica. I think about the chunky rings she used to wear and think about the thousands of uplifted hands on the last day wondering where hers were. We're giving it a go anyway. Some days it all seems okay. Some project goes right, and things feel positive like it's all doable. Other days are harder. People cry, recriminate. Eric threatens to fetch his shotgun. I figure if it all gets too much, I can just go and stand in the sea. It's laughable now, of course. That last day, I had stood quivering by those trees and the puddle of my vomit for half an hour, hanging onto Rora's hand and gaping back towards the ocean, waiting for a crimson wall of water to come and sweep us and everything else away. It never came. Later, when I was calm enough to work Google and do the maths, I established that adding the volume of all those people all at once might have made the Earth seas deeper by about the breadth of a human hair. Almost all of humanity was just a drop in the ocean. This story was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Kay Weaver. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media production. Quack. <laughs>